Hi, and welcome back to Amicus. This is Slate's podcast about the law, the courts, and the U.S. Supreme Court. I'm Dahlia Lithwick. I cover these things for Slate, and this week our attention has been completely captivated by three huge, huge trials. Uh, Criminal trials for Kyle Rittenhouse in Wisconsin and for Travis McMichael, Gregory McMichael, and William Roddy Bryan Jr. for the killing of Ahmaud Arbery in Georgia. In addition to those two, we've been watching the civil trial of the white supremacists who organized the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville, Virginia in 2017. Each of these trials alone could stand as a case study on where we are on race in America in the fall of 2021. And Friday afternoon's verdict in the Rittenhouse trial acquitting him on all counts, landed us once more in the not-shocked-but-still-horrified split-screen world of a criminal justice system that appears institutionally ill-equipped to deliver justice. Later on in the show, Slate Plus listeners are going to get to hear from Slate's new jurisprudence editor, Nicole Lewis, about what these three lawsuits can tell us about this moment. The criminal justice system is not a forum in which we get to really resolve any of these issues. It just can't be. It is actually one of the main drivers of incredible racial inequality and injustice, right? A disproportionate number of people who sit in the defendant seat are people of color. Um, And so what happens to them in some ways on a systemic level matters more than some of the outcomes of these individual cases, if that makes sense. If we're talking about millions of lives as opposed to a handful of people, the backdrop is what makes it so hard to watch the way that these men get treated in the sort of special treatment or the deference that they're shown. I am so excited to welcome Nicole to the show for the first time. And if you are not a Slate Plus member yet, you can access that segment in full plus ad-free versions of all Slate's podcasts by signing up at slate.com slash amicus plus. It is just a dollar for your first month, and we are so incredibly grateful to all of our Slate Plus members who support the work we do here at the magazine and who help us make this show. That's slate.com slash amicus plus, and thank you. What began as a conservative judicial revolution against judicial activism has instead become a conservative notion of the Constitution, which is based on judicial activism. For the main show, I want to say this. For as long as we have been doing Amicus, we've wanted to do a big omnibus climate episode because the court has played such a significant role in regulating the EPA and also because of, like, just general existential terror. The last couple of weeks have seen dramatic climate news coming out of Glasgow, Scotland, where after intense negotiation, world leaders came to an agreement at COP26. And this month also saw the Supreme Court granting certiorari on a major case involving the Clean Air Act. In other words, the ability of the government to protect the environment, to respond to the climate crisis is in the news. To be sure, it's always in the news, but we need to talk about it. 
And so we are joined this week by Richard Lazarus. He is the Howard and Catherine Abel Professor of Law at Harvard University, where he teaches environmental law, natural resources law, Supreme Court advocacy, and torts. Professor Lazarus has represented the United States, state and local governments, and environmental groups in the U.S. Supreme Court in 40 cases. He's presented oral arguments in 14 of those cases. And his 2020 book, The Rule of Five, was a gavel-to-gavel behind behind-the-scenes TikTok account of the most important environmental law case I have ever heard at the Supreme Court. I'm so delighted he is making a long overdue appearance on our podcast. So, Richard Lazarus, welcome to Amicus. Thanks, Dahlia. Delighted to be here. And, and I want to start with your background. Um, you've been teaching uh, law students environmental law for a very long time. I wonder how you found your way there um, and whether, I guess I just want to ask, does it change? Does your whole curriculum change based on who's in the White House? My class changes every year. Uh, I teach torts, you mentioned. My torts class basically stays fairly static and I've been teaching this since 1989. I mean, there's you know, give and take changes here and there, but it's a pretty static first year, first semester class. Uh, I change material, but it's the, it's the same basic concepts. My environmental law class, every you teach it, uh, you have to change almost everything. Uh, you know, when you went from Obama to Trump, from Trump to Biden, I mean, I started teaching environmental law when Ronald Reagan <laughs> was president of the United States. It's a subject which changes dramatically. I decided I wanted to be an environmental law professor when I was 17 years old. I went to college, my hometown school, University of Illinois, Urbana, Illinois, where I grew up. I had no idea what I wanted to do. Uh, I was 16 years old when I graduated from high school. When I showed up to Illinois campus in the fall of 1971, and I had no idea what I was doing there. So I, I dropped out and spent what would have been my spring semester in Europe traveling around. And it was during that time I really sat down and tried to figure out what I wanted to do. I was very politically active. I saw what was happening in environmental issues at that time. Uh, EPA had just been created uh, uh, just before. And I literally decided that I thought I could marry my interests, my political interests, and my talents. I was really good at math and science with environmental law. So I remember sitting down in June of 1972 with the University of Illinois course catalog, and I flipped through it. I saw there was a course called environmental chemistry. And then I kept flipping through, and I came across a course in environmental economics. My friends would ask me, why are you majoring in chemistry or economics? I would say, it's my pre-environmental law program. Uh, there were no environmental studies program of any kind. I decided really then uh, I want to be an environmental lawyer. So I went to law school to do environmental law, after law school, I practiced environmental law, and then I eventually joined the law faculty. And I've taught at many places before I came uh, to Harvard uh, Law School. I wonder when you started both studying and thinking about this and eventually teaching, did it always feel existential to you and the world just uh, didn't get it? Or just in your lifetime, has it gone from being, hmm, this is a thing we should be you know, using the law to try to think about in a systemic way? Or was it always in your view? Uh, TikTok, man, this is super bad. It was always super bad. It was never existential. That is something which I don't think environmental law professors or my class, we would have said until we got to the 90s uh, when it came to starting to think more about climate change. 
What's interesting to me is I go back to my, my environmental chemistry class and I actually have my book in my office, my environmental chemistry book, and we had a chapter on climate change. So when I took environmental chemistry in 1974, we studied climate change, but it was not anything we taught, nothing we practiced at all. What we knew when I started teaching in 1983, and certainly when I practiced before then and ever since, we knew environmental lawmaking was hard. It was structurally hard. Because of the way that our ecosystem spreads costs and benefits out over time and space, you're always regulating activities at one place at one time for the benefit of people at another place at another time. That by itself is just hard for law to do because when you spread out cause and effect, it makes it uncertain and it makes it hard to elect people to office who say, I'm gonna regulate the here and now for the benefit of the there and then. Uh, and that's hard to run for office, get elected for anything in the United States. So it's always been hard. But in the 1990s, basically, that's when it dawned on us how existential the threat was of climate change. Because what it did is it took what we always knew was true, which is a spreading out of cause and effect over time and space, which made it hard to get these laws passed, maintained and enforced, and it just went wild. Because when you look at climate change, it spreads cause and effect out over the entire globe and over centuries. So we're talking about regulating people who do things now. Here in the United States, you drive your SUV too much. Uh, you keep your light bulbs on too, too long. You're causing famine and drought and the spread of infectious disease uh, along the equator. Uh, and you're doing it for people, not now, but doing it to people 80, 90, 100 years from now. It's really hard to get your head cognitively wrapped around that. And it doesn't make any difference where the greenhouse gas emissions come from. They're fungible, whether they come from you know, Russia or China or the U.S. or India. So when you lack any lawmaking institution which covers the spatial scope of the problem, and you lack any lawmaking institution which governs the temporal scope of the problem, it's really hard. So th th there are structural reasons why the United States has struggled for 30 years. We've known about climate change for at least 30 years, since 1990. It's been clear that the greenhouse effect was here. The evidence has gotten more and more deep. The impacts uh, have gotten more and more sort of severe, but we've really known a lot of that since the mid-90s. The problem is that it's really hard to pass laws in any one country at any one time which addresses a problem of this temporal and spatial scope. And that's what we've been struggling with ever since. What makes it really hard, Dahlia, is that time isn't fungible. I mean, a lot of environmental problems, if you don't address it at time A, okay, okay. Uh, you've lost something, you lost some wetlands. You have a hazardous waste site, you clean it up. Uh, when it comes to climate change, the longer you wait, the exponentially harder it is to address and then there's some tipping points uh, where if you don't wait too long, you, you may not be able to effectively address it. And that's why people refer to it as an existential threat, which is what Al Gore did in his book, Earth and the Balance, published in June of 1992, so 30 years ago. So, so in, a, in a sense, 
the solution is the problem, which is once you've hit a tipping point, there is just a real tendency to be, it's too big, it's too much, it's too hard, you know, we're all doomed. And in a weird way, the tiny incremental steps are so much more satisfying if you feel like it is leading to something. I mean, certainly the moment we're in, it just feels like this is very, very galactic closing of the barn door after it's all over. And that's your really what you're describing is over time, over space, it just feels insoluble. It is hard. And I think if you go to many environmental law professors' offices, you might see a dent in the wall, uh, which is where we kind of bang our <laughs> bang our head uh, against it. I mean, the fact is, for you and me, whatever climate change is going to happen is going to happen. And that's all set. Everything we're trying to do now is a limit the amount of climate change 30 years from now or 40 or more years from now. That's hard. With that said, you know, I tend to be an optimistic person. I tend to think there's things we can still do. I'm not fatalistic in that sense. Uh, you, you fight the good fight. You keep on plugging. And we've been surprised in the past. If you get economic incentives in the right place, if you get changes in people's cultural behavior, that's happened too in the United States and the world. If you do that, uh, you get some new technology uh, and some new social practices. Uh, we can do a lot. We've been so bad at this. There's a lot of low-hanging fruit. I want to ask you just one other framing question, which is I, you've been on my mind throughout COVID insofar as it seems like the template is exactly the same, which is you have science, you have facts, you have research, and then you have politics layered over it, which throws all of that into a blender. And I guess I'd ask you to reflect just for a minute the extent to which you watched COVID policy play out in the United States, and this felt a little bit like Groundhog Day because there are solutions. There are agreed upon solutions. We can bicker around the margins. We know what the science is. We know what needs to be done. And yet politics stymied that entire conversation in a way that kind of kept it from getting out of the starting gate. Did that feel to you like something that is a sort of repeat of, of what you've been thinking about in the decades you've been doing environmental work? Yes, in a very sobering and destabilizing way. If you had watched me in March 2020 to March 2021, you would have seen me maybe literally slump more and more in my chair. And that's because of the implications for dealing with a problem like climate change. The parallels are clear. And the lessons, unfortunately, as I said, are quite sobering. COVID and the global pandemic is a piece of cake compared to climate change because you don't have the spreading out of cause and effect over time. If you wear a mask now, you save lives now. If you take your vaccine now, you save lives now. And so you don't have that spreading out, which makes climate change so hard. You have immediate benefit, enormous quick benefit for your actions. And you have absolutely clear science. The science is actually much clearer here. It's always hard to have clear science when you're spreading out cause and effect over 100 years and around the globe. But when you're actually talking about, you will spread it in your neighborhood, in your, at the wedding, <laughs> you, know, well, you name it, it's going to happen. And still, a significant percentage of our population decided to not listen, to not want to have the government tell them what to do, that it raised, you know, these individual liberty and autonomy things, which are so central to our culture, often in, in positive ways. But to see the science of COVID 
actually become politicized, the wearing of masks, the taking of vaccines, the implications of that for doing stuff about something, you know, an order of magnitude harder, climate change. I consider that a a major setback. We will be right back. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Hey folks, I'm Preet Bharara, former U.S. attorney in Manhattan. On my podcast, Stay Tuned with Preet, I break down legal topics shaping today's news. And I'm joined by thought leaders to explore topics at the intersection of power, policy, and justice. In our increasingly complex world, clarity can feel elusive. My goal is to empower listeners with knowledge and insight during these transformative times. So I hope you'll join me every Monday and Thursday on Stay Tuned. Search for and follow Stay Tuned on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Stay informed. Stay empowered. Stay tuned. Let's return now to our conversation with Richard Lazarus, environmental lawyer extraordinaire, and our guide this week through the Administrative State Hall of Mirrors. So I want to talk about this cert grant uh, in, I guess now the, the cluster of cases is going to be called West Virginia versus EPA. But I want to start by asking you to do the stuff that we don't do nearly enough on this show, which is just talk about the thing that makes people's <laughs> eyes glaze over, which is just deregulation writ large. And it feels like one of the reasons I wanted to have you and one of the reasons that I think this cert grant matters is that it's at the sharp edge of this much, much bigger legal story about Chevron deference and anti-delegation doctrine and attempts to shrink the power of federal agencies. And that's all the stuff that I think listeners just find to be arcane and abstract and hypothetical. And, you know, we're talking about doctrines that have been out of favor for a very long time. So I wonder if you would talk to us like we're one else and just explain sort of the web of thinking about deregulation and this moment that we're we're in before we get to how it impacts, you know, the EPA and climate specifically. Here's the uh, what's happening at the Supreme Court. And this has been building for several years or maybe a few decades with its p- full potential now maybe realized with uh, President Trump's addition of three justices of the court. And, and that is for several decades, ever since, uh, you know, FDR's New Deal, we have had an administrative state at the federal government where social regulation of many kinds whether it's you know labor, whether it's civil rights protections, whether it's environmental protections, whether it's consumer product safety convention, they've all depended upon the same FDR model. And that is Congress passes a law which guarantees certain protections uh, to individual citizens, and then it delegates authority to federal agencies, often in FDR's time called the alphabet soup of federal agencies. And it's their job to take these statutes written in broad terms and to fill in all the details and to come up with regulations which actually achieve congressional purposes. But the assumption has been it's not possible for Congress 
to anticipate all the details ahead of time. So they pass very broad, capacious language. And it's not possible for Congress to amend the laws every time something new comes up. And that's been basically the brilliance of the New Deal. And it's something that the country has become dependent upon really for decades. That basic structure, we call the administrative state, and it really think of the FDR New Deal administrative state, has been wildly successful in the United States. That is currently under serious constitutional challenge. It was under serious constitutional challenge in the 1930s. But then the Supreme Court basically withdrew, retreated from throwing out those laws. And it's not been in serious constitutional challenge ever since then. But now it is. It's under challenge basically on sort of one theory with several expressions. The theory basically is that it violates separation of powers for Congress to give to the executive branch, those administrative agencies, such sweeping authority that Congress itself has to fill in all the details in the statutes they pass. Congress can't delegate that to federal agencies, and that means they have to keep passing laws over time which fill in the details and deals with the new problems. What's happened now is Supreme Court, in a couple expressions, a couple doctrines, has been suggesting that Congress doesn't have that power to delegate. And the two different ways it's expressed itself in terms of constitutional doctrine are, one, the non-delegation doctrine. And the last time the court struck down a federal statute of non-delegation doctrine, I think it was 1934. They did it twice. It had one good year, uh, but, but not since then. Uh, so the idea is that Congress just can't do that. It can't delegate that authority to a federal agency. It has to write the details themselves. The second expression, which is one which may turn out to have more practical and more immediate impact, is called the major questions doctrine. And that is one which says that the courts are not going to read a federal statute Congress has passed to have authorized the agency to fill in those details if the regulation would have a major impact on the economy and on society. If it's such a big deal regulation, then in that subcategory of cases, they're going to want to see that Congress has specifically thought about the issue. Now, you know, one can come up, in, you know, as an abstract matter with an argument for why, well, that kind of makes sense. If we're talking about a really big deal, a really big law, why shouldn't Congress have to pass it uh, in the first instance? Well, one, we thought we crossed that bridge in the 1940s. But beyond that, the real problem we have now is a practical one. And that is Congress doesn't pass any laws anymore. Congress doesn't pass any big law. The only thing they tend to pass are budgets. They'll pass that. Or after, you know, the Gulf War or after 9-11, they'll pass an anti-terrorism law. Uh, The last time, for example, they passed a major environmental law was 1990. It's the Clean Air Act. That's 30 years ago. In the 70s and 80s, up to then, Congress passed law after law after law. It was really impressive. Detailed laws and thoughtful laws with bipartisan majorities. Overwhelming especially in the environmental protection area. But since 1990, they don't pass anything. So the agencies are left with this old language, which is very capacious. So if regulation in favor of the public health and welfare and protect things like the environment or worker safety, it depends upon Congress passing new laws. In short, good luck with that. So the combination right now of a court which is saying only if Congress says it specifically 
are we going to say that the agency have the authority, combined with the fact that Congress doesn't pass anything, and we have a lot of looming crises, uh, that's kind of you know, social welfare law's worst nightmare. Uh, and that's where we are uh, right now. And that's why people uh, are so worried. This threat, based on separation of powers, a very muscular notion of separation of powers, it's been brooding among the court probably for the last 20 plus years, but there was never a majority for it. You saw Justice Scalia talk about it. You certainly saw Justice Thomas write about it, but they were two votes. There was never a majority for it. Chief Justice Rehnquist was too much of a pragmatist for that. Justice O'Connor, Justice Kennedy, certainly Justice John Paul Stevens and Justice David Souter. So there was never like a majority for it to realize Justice Thomas' quite radical vision of separation of powers. But with three new justices on the court, there's reason to think there might be a working majority to give, at very least, an aggressive application of major questions doctrine, uh, and maybe the whole thing, which is an aggressive application of the non-delegation doctrine. And, and just for point of clarification, if the court says uh, it is not the province of the agencies to regulate unless they've specifically been delegated the powers, and also Congress is dysfunctional in the extreme, doesn't this arrogate immense amount of power back to the courts? Yes, is that part of yes. the attraction it's a, it's a, here? Is it allows the court to be making policy in a way that should be anathema to? Yeah, and, and it certainly is something which is somewhat ironic, uh, given that the revolution of the court started with Ronald Reagan was a notion the courts were too active uh, and too quick to second guess the executive branch and too quick to enjoin the executive branch. We, we've sort of come full circle on this. Uh, And what began as a conservative uh, judicial revolution against judicial activism uh, has instead become uh, a conservative uh, notion of the Constitution, uh, which is based on judicial activism. Uh, And that is, you know, second guessing executive branch actions, whether it's under, as we've seen recently, under free speech uh, or free exercise or on limits of the ability of Congress in the first instance to delegate things the executive branch. So that's why we're seeing much more questioning uh, of the executive branch in a very active way by what is not a modest uh, federal judiciary, especially in the Supreme Court. And I feel like I need to ask this also just to, to get clear in my own head. But when I read Neil Gorsuch on this, or Brett Kavanaugh on this, or certainly Clarence Thomas on this, uh, critics on your side tend to say this is just nihilism. I mean, what is the long game here? The long game cannot be to hobble government from solving problems. And so I guess I want to ask, is this just kind of a pristine view, as you say, of separation of powers or of textualism? It's some kind of life in a bubble that is separate entirely from the reality that one needs uh, administrative state in order to function? I tend to be a fairly traditional person when it comes to the Supreme Court. I don't tend to view the justices as partisan political hacks, like many people uh, uh, increasingly do. But I have a hard time resisting the idea that the rise of these issues, the rise against deference to the executive branch 
and how it took hold during the Obama administration was happenstance. It came at a time when, when conservative judges and justices didn't like what the executive branch was doing. I mean, Chevron, which is this doctrine which has been around since the mid-1980s, which is that courts should defer to agency interpretations uh, when the language the agency is interpreting is ambiguous. That was championed by Justice Scalia in the 1980s and, and 1990s. It only became sort of a violation of separation of powers, potentially unconstitutional, when we had a progressive liberal administration uh, during Obama. That's when all of a sudden Chevron became an anathema. Uh, what instead had been championed by conservatives as judicial modesty instead became something which they thought was unconstitutional, literally unconstitutional. Uh, and Judge Gorsuch, before we get Justice Gorsuch, actually campaigned in many ways for the position by making clear he thought that. And in certain respects, Judge, now Justice Kavanaugh, did the same on the D.C. Circuit. So I don't like to think of them as pure partisans, but I have a hard time embracing the idea that they came to this realization of the right role of the Congress and the executive branch that at first came to the forefront at a time when the executive branch was doing things uh, which were contrary to their own policy preferences. We will be back after a brief pause to hear from our sponsors. More now with environmental lawyer and advocate Richard Lazarus and the really consequential through line emerging at the Supreme Court when it comes to our planet's future. So can you walk us quickly through this new EPA grant? Uh, it's nominally about this Obama-era clean power plan, but that plan is actually not currently in effect. I think there's one way to look at this, that this is a big nothing burger. It's probably the absolute polar opposite of a nothing burger in your eyes. Yeah, you're right. There's a good way to see it as, as nothing, and then I'll tell you why it might be something. So the Supreme Court in late October granted four consolidated cases. And these were cases in which the Trump administration had repealed what the Obama administration's clean power plan. And that was a plan which called for the regulation of greenhouse gas emissions from existing coal fire power plants, the, the largest source of greenhouse gases. This was the Obama administration's signature program. And it came out in October 2015, and it came out not by happenstance then. It came out just in time for the negotiations in Paris in December 2015. If they hadn't gotten out the clean power plan in October, there would have been no Paris Accord in December 2015. The rest of the world said, United States, you've got to ante up. You've got to show you mean business before we agree to everything. So they got it in. We had this historic agreement with almost 200 nations signing on in December. The Trump administration repealed that plan. Uh, and they replaced it with their own plan called the Affordable Clean Energy Plan, which was much more modest in its regulation of greenhouse gas uh, emissions. On the very last day of the Trump administration, January 19th, 2021, the D.C. Circuit struck down Trump's repeal of the Clean Power Plan and struck down their replacement plan, the Affordable Clean Energy Plan. It was quite a striking uh, opinion to rule that invalid. And many people in the environmental movement and many states which were celebrated that. And one would have thought the Biden administration would have said, well, this is perfect. Uh, we've gotten rid of the repeal, and now we can put back into place 
the clean power plan, and do ever more. But the Biden administration folks, they're not fools. They knew that the chances of that case going up to the Supreme Court of the United States, if the clean power plan was reinstated, were great. Uh, and they knew that they'd won the D.C. Circuit, but that's not the United States Supreme Court anymore. And they felt so strongly about that. They didn't want this case to go up to the court. They basically unilaterally surrendered. They said to the D.C. Circuit, don't reinstate the clean power plan. They announced, we're not going to go back and do the clean power plan. They said, we're going to go back and set a come for the whole new uh, plan. And they told that to the court. So in a normal course of events, when these petitions were filed, seeking review of the D.C. Circuit opinion, this is a no-brainer for those of us who follow the Supreme Court. This is cert denied. There's the Clean Power Plan is not revived, and EPA said we're going to take a couple of years to come up with a new plan. Now, it wasn't legally moot, but it was prudentially moot. Uh, so when the court anyway, after basically four conferences, grants the case, you kind of go, well, is this a nothing burger uh, or is this a really big deal? And you can do the nothing burger. You say, well, the administration wasn't going to do the clean power plan anyway. So if the court turns around and says you can't do it, it's a nothing burger. Uh, but then why did the court take the case? Uh, and one has to think the court took the case to make a bigger statement and to make a statement which will be more sweeping. It could be as sweeping as the non-delegation doctrine which says you can't do anything in this area unless Congress passes a detailed law, or it could be one based on the major questions doctrine. In other words, it could do more than get rid of the clean power plan. It could actually limit EPA's authority to do things even in a more conservative, traditional way in terms of pollution control than the clean power plan. If not, why else take the case? Uh, so th that's the big worry. And certainly industry, and this is the mining industry in particular, um, the power plant industry didn't petition for Supreme Court review. As a matter of fact, there are power plant industry representatives on the side of the clean power plant because this is, they know this is what they're doing as a matter of good economic practice. So at this point, you know, industry says we got, they're going to go, they're going to swing for the fences on this one. And the worry is that the justices and this new majority, and there are six justices people are, are worried about, that they can find five who won't just say the clean power plan is unlawful. I, by the way, think it's lawful, but I understand it's actually, you know, it's not a, it's not a slam dunk legal issue, but if they do more than that. That's what people are worried about. And it's going to depend upon, you know, the, the normal ones, uh, which is the chief justice, justice Barrett and justice Kavanaugh. And what makes this case particularly hard is that Justice Kavanaugh, we pretty much know his views on this one. Uh, when the Clean Power Plan was first being litigated in the D.C. Circuit in September 2016, the original Obama plan, he sat on the en banc court uh, and he made it quite clear during an oral argument that he thought this violated the major questions doctrine with repeated questions. So our guess is, you want to speculate, the justice who probably pushed the court to take this non-certainty case was Justice Kavanaugh. He probably already had written a dissent. The D.C. Circuit was expected to approve the Clean Power Plan in 2016. He probably already has his dissent written from then, and it's ready to go. But that makes the challenge uh, of the respondents here, and that's going to be the Biden administration, 
uh, the power companies on the side of the clean power plan, the environmental groups, and certain states led by New York. If you've already, one of your three <laughs> is already gone, and he's probably gone, you've got to get either the Chief Justice uh, or Justice Barrett. Uh, you got to no, get them both to do it. And you know, Chief Justice is, uh, he's a very principled individual. He's got a lot of integrity. He cares about the institution. But he also probably uh, is on the, on the side of thinking the EPA went too far in the clean power plan. On the other hand, uh, Justice Barrett, we just don't know. I mean, there's reason to think she'll be conservative on it. She didn't face these issues on the Seventh Circuit. And, but here, Dolly, I'm going to tell you what I'm going to be looking for. Uh, and that is, the real question will be not so much the way it's going to go. My guess is, I, I hope the court sees it differently. We know by jurisdiction to the merits, when they hear full briefs, they often do change their minds. Uh, but if they're not going to change their minds, it's going to come down to opinion assignment. It's going to come down to who gets the opinion assignment in this case. Um, and if the chief is in the majority, he'll have the opinion assignment authority. If he's not in the majority, Justice Thomas will have the opinion assignment authority. And that's a very different opinion assignment. So one has to wonder where you want the chief to go in something like this. Uh, and you have to wonder where you want to go, where you want Justice Kagan and Justice Breyer uh, to go. If they were to agree that the Clean Power Plan was unlawful and the chief were to agree the Clean Power Plan was unlawful, well, then uh, that's uh, a seven or eight justice majority and the chief gets the assignment of it. Uh, and the one thing we do know about Chief Justice Roberts, he loves those contrary assignments. It's one of his ways of emphasizing to the American people that the court isn't just partisan. Uh, and so whenever he has a conservative justice on things that people with popular culture would think was liberal, he assigns them the opinion, like he did Gorsuch in the you know, recent gay rights and transgender cases. Whenever he has a liberal justice on a side which looks like it might be conservative, he assigns that justice the opinion, again, to emphasize that. So this becomes a complicated case to watch. And it's one we're going to watch with great interest to see, one, whether justices, one, could just be convinced to change their mind. The Clean Air Act is a mess. It's really hard. It takes a lot of work. They shouldn't have granted this case. The best news would be they do what we call dismiss the case, dig it, dismiss the writ as improbably granted. That doesn't seem very likely, but uh, instead it may be sort of, it's going to be who gets the opinion and how narrowly or broadly it's written. And maybe one other confounding variable, because I think you're exactly right. I think this is the kind of thing that can be handled, right? Um, and that it can be made to seem smaller than it is, depending on uh, what how you produce a majority. But swing for the fences on an environment case in a year where the court is seemingly swinging for the fences on reproductive freedom and possibly on affirmative action and, uh, you know, on, on so many other really big well, the ticket Amendment. issues. The <laughs> Second Amendment. Um, I mean, I guess what I want to ask is, and it's sort of, 
it, it harkens back to where we started, which is, what if the court decides it's still worth it to swing from the f- for the fences because it's just a case about the regulatory state and nobody cares? Like, I, I just wonder if the court has immense cover to do something big here, even in a year where they're going to do a bunch of other big things because it's going to be a snoozer. And I guess you've covered so much, not covered, you've thought so hard about these cases. Is there a way that this rises to this level of exigent, I'm using that word again, you know, of existential, critically important, or is it just going to look like a process case, no matter how you slice it? Uh, you know, I, I, my worry is it'll be just the latter. Uh, uh, it just doesn't have that, that salience. Uh, the non-delegation doctrine, the major questions doctrine, uh, and you can easily justified in some purest principle about big issues should be decided by the legislature, the more democratically accountable group. So uh, that is exactly the worry. I mean, justices who care about what the public thinks about them, uh, they may hold their fire on the abortion issue. Uh, They may do the same on affirmative action, although I doubt it. Uh, (laughs) And they may have some in the Second uh, Amendment. This one's it's very much one which doesn't have that kind of political uh, salience a- at all. I-, I don't think the ruling on its face will be so obvious in terms of impact on climate regulation. Yes, they might say the Clean Power Plan was unlawful, and therefore the Trump administration could repeal it. I don't think that's going to mean a lot to a lot of people. It does to me. It does to a lot of environmentalists. It does to a lot of people who care about climate change. Uh, but I don't think it has the salience uh, in the popular culture right now. And the real mischief will be the sweep of the reasoning and not, not the holding. Not, it's not going to be whether the judgment law was reversed or affirmed. It's going to be how the opinion is written. And that tends to escape uh, a lot of attention. I want to also talk, if you want to, about another case where the cert is pending, um, Sackett versus uh, US EPA. And I want to talk about it because I think you would say this is an example of something that's queued up, that, you know, to the extent that we've all sort of missed the boat on the case that the court is, in fact, hearing, we're really, really about to miss the boat on what's coming down the pike. So do you want to sort of lay that out for us? Sure. So the court has already taken one of the most significant cases it could under the Clean Air Act, uh, the, the nation's most important air pollution control law. Well, the nation's most important water pollution control law is the Clean Water Act. It first passed in 1972, the Air Act first passed in 1970. Well, the single most important issue under the Clean Water Act is its geographic scope. And that is what waters are covered in the statutory term waters of the United States. Uh, And the court faced this issue last in a significant way in a decision called Rapanos versus United States decided in 2006. And the court split four to one to four. Justice Scalia wrote for four, uh, the plurality opinion, but it had no more votes than the dissenting opinion written by Stevens. And he came with a very narrow definition of waters in the United States, basically permanent waters rather than seasonal waters, geographic features. It's one which would have had a, a significantly narrowing scope of the Clean Water Act. But government regulators, environmentalists felt they dodged a bullet on that one because Justice Kennedy denied him his fifth vote. And Justice Kennedy said, agreed the judgment would be reversed, like Justice Scalia and the, and the other four, but on very, very different grounds. 
He rejected explicitly Justice Scalia's very narrow reasoning, said the waters are not so narrow, and said, I think it's more a functional, and waters can be very broad because water is connected to other waters hydrologically. You can't protect one water without protecting everything hydrologically connected. So he said, EPA has a lot of discretion to figure out, along with the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, a more broad expansive, but they have to do it based on science, and they haven't done enough science yet. And then four justices led by Stevens said, we think it can be very broad without that additional scientific study. Well, EPA went back and they did all the science and they did exactly what Kennedy told them to do. And they came up with a detailed scientific document for a very expansive definition of waters in the United States, showing the term navigable waters, waters in the United States, need to deal with all the significant hydrological connection that waters actually have in the real world. So they put that rule out. The Trump administration repealed the rule. And so that's been litigated in the courts. But in the meantime, the Sackett family, which won a Clean Water Act case, you know, probably about eight or nine years ago on a, on a related issue, they found that the, the lower courts ruled what they had was waters of the United States. They lost in the lower courts. They've sought Supreme Court review. And the reason why it's a petition to watch and could be so significant is the following. They basically wrote very explicitly in their petition for Supreme Court review this is your chance, justices, to realize Justice Scalia's vision. He only had four votes in 2006 for his vision of the Clean Water Act. But you are a new court. We have, of those four votes, three of those four are still there. Chief Justice Roberts, Justice Alito, and Justice Thomas. And we have three, count them, three new justices who basically, when they were confirmed, you know, and ever since have fallen all, all over each other to who is more loyal to Justice Scalia's vision of law. And so it's an invitation uh, to the, or it doesn't require any overruling because in Rapanos it was, it was 414. They said this is an invitation to realize Justice Scalia's vision. The government's re- response to that petition is due November 24th. So that's coming right up. And then if the court will have to decide whether to grant the case. If they grant the case, uh, they'll grant in time for the case to be heard, probably April, as early as March as possible, probably at that point, April. And that that's quite a term. You could have, along with everything else before the court, you could have one of the most significant air pollution cases ever. And that's something which defines no less than the geographic scope of the Water Act. And that that's distressing for those of us who believe the court got it right. And what's really ironic about this, uh, Dahlia, is... In the mid-1980s, just before Justice Scalia got on the court, in a case called Riverside Bayview for the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, the Supreme Court, by a vote of 9 to 0, written by Justice White, embraced the broad sweeping definition of waters of the United States. And they agreed with the government that this you just couldn't have it more narrow than that. And not long after that, Justice Scalia joined the court. So it's certainly true that this has been something in the bullseye, was in the bullseye of Justice Scalia uh, for his 30 years on the court. And the question now is whether the court will finally make that ruling or, or not. So we've got the air and the water feeling very Genesis-y. 
Um, and then I guess I want to talk about your book because I should just say, I'll say again, um, the book is The Rule of Five, Making Climate History at the Supreme Court. It really is one of my favorite books. It's It really is in that very tiny bandwidth of page turners about the Supreme Court. Um, and uh, I love it in part because, you know, you're describing this sort of, you know, epic book. Uh, 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 environmental case and also describing, you know, the, the how the sausage is made, the the lawyers and the personalities and all the conflict and, and beauty of putting together a, a case that's as big as Massachusetts versus EPA. But I, I want to ask you if there are any lessons you can derive from really closely tracking that litigation. Um, it was a very different court. Uh, and we've talked about you know, several times now, that court is unrecognizable to us today. Um, can you say anything? I'm sure this is the the sort of nut of what you must talk to your students about all the time, but what lessons and principles we can derive when the court is much less susceptible to the kinds of arguments that were advanced at that case? A couple things. The first is good lawyering still makes a huge difference in, in the Supreme Court. Now that that's the first lesson. Uh, it makes it in, in that case, that case would not have been won without some really excellent lawyering, both in the brief writing and, and the oral argument. And there's nothing preordained about that. And they did a fabulous job of, of winning that case. And the case really has had a, po- a positive impact. Without that case, you would not have had the Paris Accord. You would not have had all the different the auto uh, emissions regulations, which are not going to be overturned by the Supreme Court. The methane, landfill, there are all these greenhouse gas emission controls which have happened because of that case. Uh, So one is good lawyering makes a difference. Uh, And the other is you never give up. I mean, uh, what you have in that case, the reason they want it is they figure out the best way to frame the case what the court they had. And that's what you have to do. Uh, uh, And that can be, in many cases, realizing I'm not going to win. So what's my soft landing? Uh, what wh- what way can I lose this case and and live again and still accomplish a lot? And a lot of what I do in Supreme Court litigation, I must always represent respondents. I've been doing that for a long time. I must never represent petitioners. Is you try to figure out, all right, the court took this case to reverse uh, against the environmental protection interest. How do we have a soft landing? Uh, and there are a lot of cases out there We've achieved landings, uh, which were perfectly fine. I've got a plaque on my wall from a client, I won't name them, where they talk about how you told us we could be okay if we lost this way. Our whole strategy was to lose this way. We lost this way. Hooray. <laughs> because then they could go out and find another way uh, to regulate. So part of it is soft landings. And part of it is recognizing, even with a hostile, skeptical court, you can still win cases. When the court takes cases at a jurisdictional stage, they haven't spent more than a few minutes on it. They haven't really thought it through. And uh, we've had a bunch of cases as respondents. Mass versus EPA was a petitioner case. We've had lots of cases respondents where the court took it to reverse. And guess what happened? They affirmed. And they affirmed by a lot. Just recently, there was a big Clean Water Act case uh, done by Earth Justice called the County of Maui versus Hawaii Wildlife Fund, where the question was whether or not a sewage treatment plant which was injecting pollutants into a deep well, and that was then going through the groundwater and reaching the Pacific Ocean, whether that was covered by the Clean Water Act 
or not. And the court took the case clearly to reverse. The Ninth Circuit had ruled in favor of the environmental plaintiffs. The court, court took the reverse. There was no reason to take it. Uh, and the Trump administration was on the side of the county. And everyone, everyone thought, well, this is clear what's going to happen. Well, the court actually affirmed. Uh, they, they actually reversed a little but they actually, the new ruling they gave for the test on the clean water is like a huge victory for the environmental groups. They could not be happier. It wasn't a soft landing. Uh, and they won six to three in the Supreme Court. And now, as a result, that decision being applied around the country for all kinds of good things. Coal ash piles are now going to be regulated under the Clean Water Act. There have been a lot of cases like that. I had a case involving household incinerator ash, uh, and whether it was a hazardous waste, and we won. And who wrote my opinion? Justice Scalia wrote the opinion for the court. Because we convinced him the text was on our side. So you have to figure out who the justices are uh, and figure out the best strategy. And you never give up. And you can outlawyer the other side by knowing your court and figure out the way to frame it. You frame it one way, you lose. You frame it another way, uh, you win. Uh, or you get a soft landing. This is a tough, tough deck of nine justices that we've been dealt right now. And it's particularly sobering because we were like this close to the first progressive majority of the court since Richard Nixon came president in 1969 and put four justices on in three years. But Hillary Clinton lost. Merrick Garland did not get on the court. And so now we've got a really conservative court. But hopefully we've got in the middle of that very conservative group, some who have things they're interested in and not just a radical conservative agenda. They have other things they care about. And our job as advocates is to tap into those things and get them to sort of reduce the reach of their rulings or to actually give us a win every once in a while, too. You know, so many of the folks that we talk to who are litigating before this court say the court takes 70 some cases. That means that the action is in the states. The action is in the lower federal courts. There is a lot of really good progressive stuff happening there. And I wonder if you can just talk a little bit about what you're seeing in terms of the whole world of litigation that isn't uh, going to be decided by Amy Coney Barrett and Brett Kavanaugh and how they choose to read the law. In other words, give us some sense, and I know this is so, again, if I think about where we started this conversation, this is a massive global problem, and maybe what happens in Massachusetts or California doesn't help any of us, but I wonder if you can give us a little bit of local hope. Yeah, no, what's amazing is, so the Obama Clean Power Plan um, was never really realized because almost as soon as it, it managed to be there during Paris, so we got the Paris Accord, and then, you know, basically less than two months later, the Supreme Court stayed it, so it never was effective. But what's fascinating is we have achieved better than the Clean Power Plan tried to do since then without the Clean Power Plan. Uh, and that's because uh, of the fact that we have all these new technologies, much better solar, much better wind. The marketplace by itself uh, is effectuating what the Clean Power Plan was trying to do by regulation. We have states around the country which took up the mantle after the Trump administration came into being, and they passed a lot of their own laws. Public utility commissions taking a lot of progressive steps to modernize the electricity grid to not subsidize fossil fuels so much. So we have a lot of stuff going on 
at the state and local level, it's not as important or as quick and efficient as having a national or let alone an international solution, but it's been very effective that way. So there's a lot going on in the states as a matter of, of state law. There's also a lot of litigation being brought in state courts as well against the fossil fuel industry in particular to try to get them to pay for some of the consequences of climate change. I, I'm less sanguine about how successful that litigation will be, but I will say some of it's pretty creative. It's pretty interesting. We'll have to wait and see what happens. But in most candor, I, I think the solution to this is not going to be litigation. I think litigation is very important. It's a good, good catalyst. Litigation as defense is important. At the end of the day, it takes legislation. It takes electing people to office. And that state office uh, around the country, it's local office in major cities around the country, and it's Congress and the executive branch. And you know, when it comes to something like climate change, the courts are never, they're never going to rescue us uh, from ourselves. Uh, we're going to have to do that. You know, Brown v. Board of Education, which was this extraordinary Supreme Court decision uh, in 1954, it didn't end race discrimination in the United States. It helped pave the way. It was extraordinarily important to help catalyze legislation and changes of views and attitudes. But we're still trying to realize Brown's promise, you know, basically 67 years later. So even the most amazing Supreme Court ruling like Brown, it's the beginning. It's not the end. And the same thing is true for climate change. Massachusetts versus EPA was a fabulous decision. It is a catalyst to push people along the way. But we're never going to achieve, you know, long-lasting transformative change with five votes of justices. Nor should five votes of justice be able to prevent transformative change that we need. But it's going to take voters to do it. And that's one of the, I think, lessons I have as a litigator for the Supreme Court is that the Supreme Court litigation is really important, uh, but far more important are elections. Richard Lazarus is the Howard and Catherine Abel Professor of Law at Harvard University. He teaches environmental law, natural resources law, Supreme Court advocacy, and torts. He has represented the United States, state and local governments, and environmental groups in the Supreme Court in 40 cases. He's presented oral arguments in 14 of those cases. And his 2020 book, The Rule of Five, really was for me, an incredibly inspiring uh, and hopeful book about how you can make a difference as a litigator at the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, I can't thank you enough. I feel as though this long-deferred conversation about the environment, the one that um, my teenage kids and probably teenagers around the world have been yelling at me to do for a long time, really required um, both your level of expertise and maybe that soupçon of optimism that I'd been missing. So thank you so, so very much for being with us. Thanks a lot, Di. It was a real pleasure. And that is a wrap for this episode of Amicus. Thank you so much for listening in. And thank you so much for your letters and your questions and your notes. You can always keep in touch at amicus at slate.com. We love your letters. And you can also find us at facebook.com slash amicus podcast. Today's show was produced by Sarah Burningham. Gabriel Roth is editorial director. Alicia Montgomery is executive producer. And June Thomas is senior managing producer of Slate Podcasts. We'll be back with another episode of Amicus in two weeks. Till then, hang on in there. Happy Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving.